Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart and Vascular Institute at Cleveland Clinic. In each podcast, we aim to provide relevant and helpful information for healthcare professionals involved in cardiac, vascular, and thoracic specialties. Enjoy. I'm Steve Nissen, and I'm uh, uh, here with uh, Dr. Christine Jealous, who's a member of our imaging section and an expert in uh, multimodality imaging. So we're going to talk today about how do you select the right imaging test for the right diagnosis. So maybe we can begin with an inventory of mm -hmm. you know, what's available now for, for cardiovascular imaging that's used commonly here at the Cleveland Clinic. Absolutely. And we're very fortunate because we really have great quality uh, staff, technicians, and equipment in all those areas. Yeah. So, if we look at it, I think you can group things into probably four different areas. We've got nuclear imaging, we've got echo, um, encompassing stress echo and transesophageal echo. We've got CT and all modalities of advanced cardiac CT and also cardiac MRI. And I think those of us who practice multimodality imaging tend to have a hand in a lot of those things and we get a real flavor for where they're complementary and for which patients are suitable for which test. So obviously there's also a difference in, in uh uh, radiation burden. Mm -hmm. uh, some of these tests involve radiation. Absolutely. Uh, and cost, mm -hmm. which is an issue. Yeah. So let's maybe start with the the most basic, which is I think echocardiography. Mm -hmm. Is echocardiography ready for the for the farm yet, or is there still uh, is still a lot of value? Look, I think echo is our workhorse. It's relatively cheap, it's portable, so we can take it to the patient bedside or the emergency room. We have nice little handheld machines now, point of care um, devices where we can really get a lot of information just at the patient bedside and that's essential for our ongoing care in the ICU where, where uh, you're working. We often yeah. come up and do um, tests that are really critical to determining um, the diagnosis for the patients. So within our echo department, we do do that sort of stat echo, that um, meaningful diagnostic test to work out what's going on. But we then are now able to throw in more advanced aspects to that testing where we can do 3D imaging. We can look at something called strain, which looks at the, the change in, uh, in shape of the heart muscle throughout the cardiac cycle, the deformation. Uh, we can also do specialized testing for advanced modalities like um, the biventricular pacemaker devices. We can use them to assess some of the uh, advanced VAD devices, patients post-transplant, as well as your garden variety coronary artery uh, disease patients, patients with valvular heart disease. So I think it's going to be a long time before we replace echo as the workhorse in our lab. So where is strain useful to mm -hmm. you? I think strain we are incorporating now in every test that we can really. I think we're seeing that it has lots of different applications and that can be in assessing things, uh, for example, cardiomyopathies, getting a feel for uh, different patterns in strain that might reflect different types of cardiomyopathies. Certainly there was some great work done here from through the clinic looking at cardiac amyloidosis and the different pattern of strain that that, that uh, demonstrates as opposed to other conditions such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, I think strain is something that we use now for clinical applicability, whereas in days gone by it was more of a research tool. But most of our studies now where um, the, uh, the, the technical capability exists, we will try and do that on everyone. And what about 3D echo? Where, where, is, it, where is it useful? Where, where is it recommended? 3D uh, echo, we again are trying to do it on every single patient, but I think where I enjoy it the most would be our transesophageal echoes 
we can get the most beautiful views of the valves, looking right down on the valve so that we can help our surgical colleagues and our interventional cardiologists really plan for interventions on these valves. So a lot of work goes into optimising these images. We get an appreciation of the valve in three dimensions that we never had before. And I think it's really um, led to some great advances in what we're able to do. We do that in the hybrid lab routinely when we're doing patients who are having mitral valve eclipse, paravalvular leak closures, and um, use it for guidance for watchman devices and so on. So it's something that is a newer technology, but the, the size and the miniaturization of these 3D technologies now really has enabled us to, to get it down to such a small level. We have it in, the, in our routine probes that we use on everyone. Um, and it's become an essential part of what we do. So not everybody makes good images by echo. So who are the, where, where are the problem patients that you're still encountering a lot of? Look, I think body habitus is a critical thing. Um, and that can be just a really small person with very small rib spaces where it's hard to get the transducer in and get good images. Patients who are slightly bigger than average also can have challenging images because of additional tissue between the probe and the heart. Um, but sometimes it's difficult to predict and I think that's where we have some additional techniques that we use like echo contrast that we have available to us administered by our nurses to really bring out the, um, the borders of the heart and allow us to get a good evaluation on everyone. How about the COPD patient? They are also a group that are, that are difficult and I think yeah. they're always a challenge and that's where I think having great technicians who are experienced and who have people available to help them uh, take additional images. The staff are always on hand to review the images and, and go in and help as well because I think this is um, a technique that requires practice and those patients are often challenging. So let's talk about another old modality, nuclear. Mm -hmm. uh, we hear that maybe nuclear is fading a little bit in terms of its utility. Is that you think that's true or not true? Well, I think it started to fade away and then we had the resurgence of nuclear. And I feel like we're in the resurgence right now. So we have an amazing pet lab who are leading the way in terms of um, new applications for, for pet imaging. Where our multimodality cardiac sarcoidosis clinic is one area where we're increasingly using pet imaging. Um, additionally, um, in patients with coronary disease, we're able to use those uh, stress PET imaging to evaluate those patients. And then novel applications, um, technesium pyrophosphate scanning for the amyloid patients was an area that has really um, wasn't something we routinely did and now we do it in most of our patients who were suspicious for amyloid. Is PET still your go-to imaging modality for looking for hibernating myocardium? I think so, it, yeah. especially it can vary a little bit institute by or, or enterprise by enterprise, but I think for us, um, for those difficult patients, especially if you're going to be subjecting them to open heart surgery, you want to make sure the muscle's viable, I think for us PET has become the go-to. And of course we have the cyclotron which lets us make uh, specialized isotopes, which is very helpful. Absolutely, and I think we're lucky that we also have cardiac MRI uh, and dobutamine stress echo as always our fallbacks in the event that we can't do PET, but yeah. um, I, I think it's where it's it's an advantage of being here that we have all those modalities. And so what about Sestamebi scanning? Where does that stand in the current era? Look, I think it still, it still ha definitely has a role. And I think it's really selecting out uh, for any lab where your strengths are, what the patient's background is, and which test is going to be best for each patient, um, and also the expertise of the readers. So for example, if I had a patient with um, past history of coronary bypass surgery and I wanted to do a stress test and I knew that perhaps they already had some resting regional wall motion abnormalities, I would be more inclined to send them for a nuclear test perhaps 
than a dobutamine or exercise stress test when I knew regional warm ocean uh, analysis may be a little bit more problematic. Same with if there was a, a pre-existing left bundle branch block. Um, sometimes those patients are better served in the nuclear lab. And I think that's where knowing what your strengths are in your hospital and your lab are really important. Okay, so then along comes cardiac CT. Mm -hmm. And so where are you seeing the greatest utility with car for cardiac CT? I think it's a great stratification tool. So if you've got someone that is in that intermediate risk group and you want to make sure that they're really not um, at higher risk than you anticipate, we've got the calcium scoring application that we can use to stratify them by score, but also looking at the anatomy. Um, we're fortunate here that we have some really great cardiac dedicated CT scanning machines. And we know the radiation doses with those machines is low, so I don't have any hesitancy um, referring patients for, the, for that type of screening test. But if you've got someone with peripheral vascular disease, as you know, there's likely to be a lot of underlying calcification, and those patients are probably not well suited with a cardiac CT, and then I'd steer them towards one of the other modalities. Yeah. Same if they've had a prior stent. Is there any role for cardiac CT in the valvular disease patient? We do sometimes do um, coronary CTs in those patients if they're very young, and we want to make sure that they don't have any underlying coronary disease before going ahead with surgery, but don't want to subject them to an invasive cath. We also use um, a lot of uh, cardiac CT as stratification before cardiac surgery, particularly in patients having redo operations where we want to look at the distance to sternum, make sure there's no grafts that are going to be damaged by a redo sternotomy. We have a lot of patients with aneurysms who we're also doing um, serial measurements on. Um, and those patients often will have CTs, but increasingly I think we're comfortable to use cardiac MRI in those patients too. Uh, to minimize the risk of repeated radiation doses over time. So that brings us to cardiac MRI, <laughs> and uh, uh, this seems to be kind of the hot modality now. So what's going on in the world of cardiac MRI that people need to know about? Look, I think increasingly we're using it as a complementary tool to ECHO. So those, many of us who read MRI also uh, read ECHO, and I think there's complementary information that we can get. We use cardiac MRI frequently for um, assessment of valvular dysfunction, particularly uh, in aortic regurgitation, which can be difficult to be 100% certain on via echo in certain circumstances. Um, and we can do quantitative flow on MRI that allows us to actually calculate the regurgitant fraction and be more certain on how severe they, that aortic regurgitation is. But I think there's so many different applications, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, pericarditis, constriction, um, Again, um, magnetic resonance imaging to assess aortas, congenital heart disease. The sky's really the limit. And I think um, that's where I think preparing for the study is important. We're very strict about setting up our protocols. So we look at why does the patient need the study? What sequences do we do to answer that question and really target in what we're doing? Because these can be very long uh, test for the patients and we need to be mindful of that and really um, try and answer the question of why the patient was referred. Now in the patient that uh, you have trouble making images by echocardiography, is MRI seeing increasing utilization? You get, an, you get an echo and it's just not of the quality you want, is that kind of your next go-to? Absolutely and I think you then do away with all the things we mentioned, small rib spaces, large body habitus, you're really able to slice and dice the heart from any angle. Um, we're, we're finding that the patients where this is uh, especially critical for is patients who are being stratified for a biventricular pacemaker or an ICD. 
and we want to be absolutely sure of what the ejection fraction is to be allow us to to uh, to uh, implement that uh, device or implant that device rather. Uh, and so the MRI generally is, is the gold standard for assessment of um, ejection fraction. So when they're on the borderline and you're not sure yeah. uh, the echo ejection fraction, maybe you've given contrast and it's still not absolutely clear, mm -hmm. you'll sometimes do an MRI to decide whether or not in fact it's a good thing to put in a uh, you know, biventricular pacemaker. Absolutely, and I think it just takes the guesswork out of that equation. Yeah. You're putting a device in someone, you wanna make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, same thing true for ICD, decisions making on ICDs? Absolutely, and often they're the same patient group. Um, yeah. So I think we have a great um, EP section here who are very proactive about ordering MRIs and, and we appreciate that this is critical information and we want to be sure about those results. Now what about the uh, adult congenital heart disease patient? Which of these modalities are, is being used now and how, how, how is it changing the management of the patients? Absolutely. So echo again, still the mainstay, but I think increasingly cardiac MRI. Here we have um, pediatric cardiologists who also read those congenital studies with us, which is really complimentary. We learn a lot from each other, which is great. And we get a, a sense not only of the anatomy, but the function. And in these patients in the congenital world, um, particularly assessment of the right ventricle is so important. And sometimes we just don't appreciate that well by echo, and MRI really brings something else to the table. Now, you do a lot of transesophageal echo, and I'd like to understand, you know, I don't know how many are done a day here, but it's a lot. So what are the diagnoses typically in those patients that are undergoing TE? Sure. So I think the most common things would be exclusion of emboli, um, left atrial thrombus, left atrial appendage thrombus prior to cardioversion, or prior to a pulmonary vein um, ablation procedure. They're probably the most common things. I think endocarditis in this current epidemic um, opiate crisis, we would do numbers of studies every day looking for patients with suspected endocarditis or who have known positive blood cultures and possible endocarditis on a transthoracic echo that we really want to evaluate in more detail. Um, our hospital is very strong in valvular heart disease, so that's probably the other main area where we're uh, evaluating severity of valve disease, especially in those patients that are either on the borderline or who perhaps don't have the greatest windows for transthoracic echoes. Um, but it's, uh, it's a great test, and we certainly uh, do plenty of them, that's for sure. Well, the world's gotten more complex. Uh, you know, in the early days of my career, we had M-mode echo. And look at what's happened in a, a generation. You know, yeah. 2D, MRI, CT, PET, these things have evolved uh, really rapidly. Let me thank you for for a really tour de force on all the imaging modalities that are available. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and share the link on iTunes.